This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The notion that this whole thing is extremely plastic, that if only you know the big shots would line up behind radical change, then the public would come around behind it as well. It's just not, I mean, it could be right, but it's a hell of a risky bet. Hello, welcome to Mr. Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, let's begin with some announcements, solicitations. So first, we're doing another AMA episode. I'm only going to keep the AMA uh, email line open for a couple weeks. After that, we actually have to record the thing. So if you've got a question you want to hear me respond to in it, uh, email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. It can be a question about anything. Exciting, unusual. Uh, let, let, let's keep it fresh. So Anything you want to hear me respond to, uh, email to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. The other big announcement here, certainly feels big to me, is I can announce at least the beginning of the Why We're Polarized book tour. Um, if that sentence didn't make any sense to you, I've got a book coming out. It's called Why We're Polarized. You can pre-order it wherever you pre-order your books or at WhyWe'rePolarized.com. But we've got at least the first bit of the tour figured out now. So we're going to be in Washington, D.C. on January 27th. I'm going to be in conversation with Jamel Bowie, which will be great, in New York City at the 92nd Street Y on January 30th with Malcolm Gladwell. Going to be in Boston on January 31st, Brooklyn on February 2nd, L.A. on February 4th, San Francisco uh, on February 6th with Anna Sale of The Great Death, Sex, and Money, Seattle on February 10th, Portland on the 12th, San Francisco uh, with Dave Eggers on the 13th. There's more. At why we're polarized or ezrakline.com. But a bunch of these are going to sell out. Uh, hopefully all of them will sell out, in fact. So if you want to come, and I would love to see you there, uh, go there and get tickets. There's details for every one of those shows and more uh, on the site, and you can sign up. Um, so again, that is why we're polarized.com. Uh, but today's episode of this show uh, is with Paul Krugman, who doesn't need a lot of introduction, uh, but you know, Nobel Prize winning economist, has a New York Times column. You might have heard of him. Uh, I've wanted to chat with him just about what's been going on uh, in policy circles uh, on the left of the Democratic Party in the 2020 campaign for a bit. And so I was super excited that he had some time to sit down with me. He's got his own book coming out, by the way, not for it's actually coming out the same day as mine uh, on January 28th. It is called Arguing with Zombies, and it's a great collection of his essays and columns. Um, but here we talk a lot about the 2020 election. Um, and we also talk a lot about the policy antecedents of the fights we're having now. And something that I think is worth at least uh, keeping an eye on in here is something that I think both Paul and I are reflecting on a bit is that 
the policy questions and advice that may be true at one moment changes over time. And so on the one hand, I think it's important to understand why people made the policy decisions they did at another time, but it's also important not to get so locked into those decisions, so locked into the questions of that political moment that you can't get back out of them and see the thing with fresh eyes. So I think this is hopefully an interesting conversation where we are able to both keep some historical perspective and see the thing with fresh eyes. Um, again, as always, I am Ezra Klein Show at box.com. If you've got guest ideas, feedback, or AMA questions, uh, the book tour is up at wirepolarized.com. So go check that out and get tickets. Here is Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. So I want to start with a section in the book where you're looking back on Obamacare, because I think it ends up being an important context for some of the fights happening in the Democratic Party right now. And you write, and I'm quoting you here, a central piece of that strategy being Obamacare was that Democratic reform plans deliberately left as much as possible of the existing healthcare system in place. At that time, what was the logic of that decision? Well, it was clear that nothing nothing that was radical was, was going to have a chance of getting through Congress, even after big Democratic victories in 2008. Uh, and that's, you know, it was partly because, well, there are interest groups and in effect, Obamacare was designed to buy off the insurance industry by giving them more business and, uh, and you know, so that, that you wouldn't run into the kind of opposition that Clinton ran into in 93. Um, but also just that people are conservative, not in the political sense exactly, but in that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you still have a country where half the population is on private health insurance. And you didn't really want to force those people to confront the question, would this new thing be better? You wanted them to feel that, well, my life won't change. Was there another path open? I think a lot of people look back on the Affordable Care Act, which has worked very well in some ways and not as well in others, and say, they should have gone further. It should have had more. That decision to buy up the insurance groups rather than taking this fight across the country was a mistake. Do you think it was a mistake or a necessity or, or was it both? Oh, I think it was a necessity. The one thing we might have been able to get was some limited form of public option. And really that that was hanging in the balance and basically Joe Lieberman killed it. Uh, but the anything more, I mean, people forget how close a thing it was. I mean, it barely barely made it through. I mean, it required parliamentary maneuvering, and there were still last-minute deals being made hours before the vote uh, that in, in the House that, that passed the thing. So it, to, to say that, well, something much bigger, something much closer to you know, whatever your preferred system is, Medicare for all, whatever, was actually a possibility in 2009, 2010, you have to have been just not there, not paying attention to the actual debate at the time. Another version of, of this argument is that that might have been true then, but the situation is different now. It's different because of the ideological tenor of the country. It's different because of something Donald Trump has proven about politics. Do you think the situation is different now, that the constraints that operated on Obamacare have lifted or changed for the next reform go-around? Oh, they've definitely changed. I mean, we've moved the Overton window or, you know, whatever your preferred cliche is considerably. Uh, I think that the things that were considered, you know, radical, like uh, allowing people to buy into Medicare, are now almost standard fare for uh, for Democrats and appear to pull 
well publicly. And I think at this point, we're a lot less worried about the opposition from the insurance industry. I don't think that uh, buying off the insurance companies is a, is a big concern right now. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't think that that's such a big deal. Um, what is still true is that people are small C conservative, that, uh, that um, to tell 160 million people, uh, we're going to replace the insurance you now have with something else and trust us, it'll be way better. That's still a very steep hill to climb. And I don't think there's any reason to believe it's going to work. Let me try a theory out on you. Um, as I've been sort of watching the discourse around this this primary emerge, so I've been thinking about is that when I think back to the Obama example, the entire Democratic Party was operating in the shadow of Bill Clinton's presidency. And Bill Clinton's presidency, the set of lessons from that were one, most things fail, right? Healthcare failed outright. It's not like they got a compromised version of what they yeah. wanted. They just got destroyed. Um, they didn't get a lot of the liberal things that Bill Clinton had promised. And then some of the things they did get were fairly conservative, actually, like welfare reform. And so there was this idea that had taken hold among liberals that it's really hard to get anything. And so what you have to do is in this hyper-pluralistic way, get all the interest groups together, reduce as opposition as much as possible. And maybe if you do all of that, you can squeak through with half a loaf or a quarter of a loaf. And then the Obama presidency on that level was exceptionally successful. It got the stimulus and Dodd-Frank and the Affordable Care Act and a lot of other things that people forget now. And the result of that, of its success, has been instead of the operative problem being failure and how do you prevent failure, the operative thing people look back on is say it wasn't enough. You got all these things done and it wasn't enough. So you have to go much bigger. And I, one, I think that might be a healthy debate. But on the other hand, I worry that the underlying situation hasn't changed and that we might ricochet back to failure. I worry a lot about a generation coming up being really mobilized by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, and then one of those presidents coming into office and just getting absolutely stopped by a Republican majority. And nobody's quite prepared for that. Nobody's quite prepared to see Clinton-like outcomes with an even more left president than Obama. I'm curious if you think there's validity to that concern. Oh, it's definitely a concern I've had. I mean, it's why, you know, we have this peculiar thing where Medicare for all versus Medicare for America, whether whether you should be advocating complete conversion into a single-payer system or basically just a, a public option and expanded uh, subsidies. And I've come down, I've been for the the more modest, the, the less radical proposal. Um, I think, though, it's probably important to make some distinctions. We don't know that... A lot of things you think of as being very left-wing are actually extremely popular. Uh, higher taxes on rich people is actually uh, a, a very popular position. Uh, it's it's you know there are there are political forces that work against it, but I don't think going in that direction is a, a terribly risky strategy. But other things, basically requiring people to change their lives a lot, requiring ordinary middle-class people to change their lives a lot. Uh, it's still, there's really no sign in anything I see that that has become something that's easy to do. I don't think it actually is ever is, is something that's easy to do. You look at, at systems that are very, very different from our own on healthcare, on other things, and they all have deep historical uh, roots. They all owe their origins to times when things were much less set in place. Uh, actually, I teach a course. Uh, I, I teach one course a year at the CUNY Graduate Center called Economics of the Welfare State. And one of the things I 
tell the students over and over again is that there's enormous path dependence in policies, that the the systems that countries have on everything, healthcare, retirement, and lots of other stuff, has a lot to do with decisions that were made generations ago. And it's very, very hard to uh, shift to a radically different path. So incrementalism actually tends to rule everywhere. So I've had this conversation with a lot of the Medicare for all advocates. And to, to lay my cards on the table here, and I think a lot of listeners know it, but I would take almost any big healthcare reform. I think you could, there's almost nothing you could do on the list of plans people are looking at that wouldn't be a lot better than what we have. But I also want to see something happen rather than just something fail. But what I hear from people on the Medicare for all side is that if you really dig into what is happening in this debate, it's two different views of what the constraint is conflicting with each other. That there's a, a version of the constraint, which is more or less the one that we are articulating here, which is there's a public opinion constraint. The public does not like disruption. Perhaps that dislike is catalyzed by campaigns that are run by insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and Republicans. But it is a powerful enough feeling within the public that that is that's a force you have to work around. You have to you have to calm it. You have to coax it. You have to you have to be very careful. And there's the, the more left view is that the public is led by elites and which sounds a little bit weird. But this is what this is what people will argue, that the problem is really that it's people like Paul Krugman and Ezra Klein making these arguments, saying that people have this small C conservatism and that if every Democratic uh, leaning elite was actually on board for Medicare for all, then people wouldn't be afraid anymore. That public opinion really isn't a constraint. It's a constraint reflecting where elite opinion already is. And I'm curious how you parse that argument. Well, I mean, it in some ways it's hard, you know, it's hard to test. But look, uh, polling says that uh, a buy-in to Medicare is very popular, but a replacement of private insurance that is not voluntary, but everyone has to go with, uh, is not nearly as popular. How many people in all of that do you think are really taking their cues from me or you? I mean, I, I just don't think it's, I, I don't have that strong a sense of my my own importance in this debate. And then again, the international evidence is really that you look at countries, uh, it's just very, very hard for to make radical changes in social programs. Uh, the, the shape of them tends to be fixed for a really long time. And one of the pieces of evidence I use for that is it turns out that countries don't – you might think that some countries do the welfare state well and others do it badly. So America with its plutocracy and so on, we do it badly and France with its uh, strong you know, uh, notion of that the government should be there to help should do it well. But in fact, uh, countries do individual programs well or badly. Uh, U.S. Social Security is widely held up as a as a role model of doing it right because we got it right at a time when things were still pretty uh, amorphous and unformed, and and got a program that can be improved and has been improved over time, uh, but is a pretty good one. On the other hand, of course, our healthcare system is a mess because of decisions we made around the same time that that left it uh, us, us with really bad stuff entrenched in the system. So I think. The notion that this whole thing is extremely plastic, that if only you know the, the big shots would line up behind radical change, then the public would come around behind it as well. It's just not – I mean, it could be right, but it's a hell of a risky bet. Let me ask you something about Social Security as a comparison here. 
So something I like about Social Security and, and, and programs that are similar to it is just the very simplicity of it. You give people a check. They can spend the money the way they want. You trust that they'll spend the money the way they need to spend it, and you get the hell out of the way. And obviously, there's an argument that universal basic income people make and, and so on. And I'm not in this question going to go all the way over there. But something that worries me a bit within the healthcare debate as somebody who's studied healthcare spending for a very long time is that all the evidence we have suggests that at a reasonably low margin, healthcare spending stops being that effective, that marginal dollars spent on and on and on and on do not address health or do not improve health as much as one might hope. And you can argue some of that is wasted care or you can argue it's the way the dollars get spent or the way the care is delivered. But whatever it is, I do not agree with the people on the right who say insurance doesn't matter. And I don't think they agree with it because they all seem to have health insurance while they're making those arguments about how the poor don't need it. But on the other hand, I don't know that if we had full control, if we could just imagine how we would want to create a welfare state, the thing you would want to do is set up a situation where we are paying for any and all healthcare spending with absolutely no breaks on it. But we're not really spending that much on housing. We're not really spending. We don't have universal pre-K. We don't have a lot of other things that might be a little bit more bang for the buck or you just want to put that money into a cash transfer and let people make some decisions. So my point here is not that I don't want to have a universal healthcare system because I do, but I'm curious how you think about that that question at the margin because one of the operative debates right now is whether or not you want to do the healthcare system in such a way that it really is free at the point of service so that there's almost no breaks on how much people are spending. And I wonder in the long run if something like that wouldn't end up starving out other things that we really do want to pay for or want to fund. It's going to be hard after some of the fiscal changes you would need to do this to do something like a Green New Deal or universal pre-K or other things that I think have a really good case for them. Oh, yeah. But I would put it a little bit differently. I don't actually worry too much that extremely generous benefits would lead to a big increase in health spending. Uh, because I, my understanding on, on health spending, not my understanding, the truth is that the big bucks are not in things where the patient decides. Uh, it's not in excess doctor visits or something like that. They, the big money is all in triple coronary bypasses and, and uh, major things that are being made uh, by medical professionals. And it's not, it's not all clear that we would be doing all that much more spending, even if even if the financial constraints were lifted, because those are on these things that really aren't financial constraints anyway. Um, but there is a real fiscal constraint. If you're going to try to shift everything to the government paying all medical bills, uh, even though that probably doesn't increase overall health spending, I might well reduce it. I, I'm, I'm on the optimistic side there. It is going to require more tax revenue. And getting that tax revenue is hard. And there's a lot of other interventions, as you were saying. I mean, universal pre-K, uh, various kinds of, of social programs that are of much more modest cost than Medicare for all might get crowded out uh, in the meantime. So uh, no, if, if I had my, my druthers, I'd do something that tries to get that large residual of people who didn't get covered by Obamacare into a system, any system. Um, but uh, the the priorities would be these sort of middle-sized programs that could make a huge difference to the you know, quality of life in America. Do you think that if you could design your perfect system, if you could just create it from the ground up, it would have private insurers in it or not? Is there a reason for private insurers to exist? Basically not. I mean, uh, yeah, private insurers for things that are relatively optional, uh, I, I guess. Uh, but it's not at all clear that insurance companies uh, on core healthcare play any useful role. If we had 
in, you know, FDR supposedly considered including health care in the Social Security Act and decided it was a bridge too far. Harry Truman came fairly close to getting that done in 1947. If we had done that, and this was at a time when private insurers um, on health care were not a big factor, uh, no one would think what we, really, what we really need now is to get the private sector in there to be doing, well, some people would think about it. It's not, no one would, would uh, seriously be saying that the, what this system lacks is competition from private insurers because it's not all clear what they can do that the government can't do on that issue. So no, my, my ideal system, if I could start from scratch, uh, would probably be, in fact, single payer. But, you know, it's, it's the old joke. Because if I wanted to get there, it wouldn't start from here. <laughs> One of the things that I was thinking about looking at some of the healthcare columns you have in the book, you, you've won where you re-engage an argument that it just brought deep flashbacks. Because I remember having this argument all the time. Conservatives used to argue all the time that America has the best healthcare system in the world. You quote uh, then Republican Senator Fred Thompson saying, the poorest Americans get better service than Canadians. And something I was realizing reading that is you don't hear that anymore. Like that argument, as far as I can tell, has died. And it might be because conservatives hate Obamacare. And so saying that we have a great healthcare system would now mean in some backhanded way complimenting Obamacare and Medicare and Medicaid. But it seems like a kind of progress that we at least don't have to argue over whether American healthcare is great anymore. Well, actually, I've been doing some work on that as we speak. Um, and I think part of the point is that even at the time, uh, even in the, in the 2000s, it was clear that American health outcomes were somewhat worse than those of, of other countries. But that gap has widened a lot. So we now have had several years of declining life expectancy, which nobody else has had. We're now looking at a situation where uh, U.S. life expectancy is is four years or more lower than that of comparable uh, advanced countries. Uh, it's pretty hard to look at that and say we have the best healthcare system in the world. It's just uh, you know the I think e even on the right, the fact that things are not going well, that we are you know that we're dying, uh, is, has has sunk in at least a little bit. So I've just done the thing here that happens in every Democratic debate where the beginning is all about health care. But I actually think the most important question at a policy level facing the next Democratic president is putting aside perhaps some political reform stuff, process stuff about how you pass bills. What should they do first, climate or health care? That's a really good question. My answer probably is neither, uh, that, that you probably want to do uh, or at least you want to do the modest stuff on health care. I mean, I liked uh, Warren Plan Number Two quite a lot better than her Medicare for All proposal because it would deliver some immediate benefits. I'm sorry to say that I'm afraid that I'm on climate, and I could be all wrong about this. But uh, even though climate is the overwhelming issue, in a way, nothing else matters if we don't deal with that. Uh, I don't think the public gets that. And a, a new Democratic president, imagine a new Democratic president with a Senate majority, has got to deliver tangible benefits right away, has to deliver stuff so that within a year, people can say, oh, yeah, something has gotten better for people like me. And climate policy is not that. Climate policy is going to involve trading some current pain for future gain. Now, the, the pain will be much, much less than the right tries to portray it, and the, the future gain is much, much larger, but it's not where I'd start off. I'd say you want to 
get some points on the board, get some uh, demonstrable successes so that you can have the credibility to start dealing with the, the climate issue. But is there evidence that getting points on the board builds that kind of political momentum? I mean, when I look at most presidencies, I don't think even the first 100 days have the kind of capital that either they once were thought to have or maybe they once did have. But it does seem to me that political capital, particularly big, ambitious political capital, drains out of the system almost like from the moment you start. And that's largely because midterms end up tend to have a like a ricochet effect in the opposite direction. And so I worry I'll, I'll put my my answer here, which is I really think that you need to do climate first. I think that climate should be the overriding priority. And I think that because if you don't do healthcare for a couple more years, the problem in the American healthcare system, which is real and I would like to see it solved, is roughly the same problem in 2025 that it is in 2021. The problem in the climate system is not. Um, every year you wait, it's getting harder and harder and harder to solve. And I just worry, and I, I think you may well be right, that you, even if you did do climate, you would end up having something pretty unpopular on your hands, that it would be the kind of thing that you might end up sacrificing a presidency to do. But some things might be worth sacrificing a presidency to do them, and I think climate might be on that list. Well, the answer is I'm not sure. And it, it is true. I mean, climate is one of these things where the damage is cumulative. Every year we wait makes, you know, it's not just that we have another year of when things are bad. It's a year when the, the, the distant future gets worse. And so there's that case for it. Uh, I guess I am somewhat influenced and maybe wrongly by what happened uh, in Obama's first year or two, where there was a pretty good climate bill uh, that we had kind of high hopes for and that, that just died, Waxman Markey. And on the other hand, Obamacare did happen. And in the end, it's playing political dividends for Democrats, I think. The, um, it, it hurt clearly in the, in the midterms in 2010. But at this point, it's become a, a strength for the party. But wow, um, it's very hard. I mean, it's possible that you could do a climate policy that at least doesn't inflict a lot of pain right away. I think on climate policy, it's actually the opposite of healthcare. On healthcare, you want to be delivering concrete benefits right away. That that slow phase in of Obamacare was a terrible mistake. On climate policy, you want to something where not much changes in people's lives in year one, but you make it uh, so unless someone is repeals the whole thing, that by year five, you're actually doing a lot of stuff. Well, another way of thinking about climate policy, and I've been doing a podcast project on it, is that this sort of changed my understanding of what one would need to do. I've always thought about climate policy heavily on the pricing side, the carbon taxes, and you mentioned Waxman-Markey, which was a cap-and-trade bill. But at least at this point, while I, I, I'm still on the of the view that those things would be good, um, at least at this point, it seems to me the single most important thing you can do is very, very, very big subsidies and research and development spending. I mean, much bigger than people tend to contemplate for different forms of renewable and clean energy. And particularly if you either paid for that in a progressive way or, you know, and I, I definitely weigh this one, just don't pay for it. Um, we've done much less important things and not paid for them. And the economy seems to have more or less survived. But if you could do that and you could do what Germany did with subsidizing wind power, which brought it down all over the world and solar power all over the world, and you could do it for a large range of other things – that would be a good thing. It would create some jobs. Maybe you can attach some sort of tax subsidy to it. It might bring down the cost of certain kinds of energy. You could have huge programs to install solar and others. I mean, some of the stuff got tried in a smaller way in the stimulus. But 
But this stuff that would have a, a potentially global impact by so heavily subsidizing clean energy seems to me like it could be done without a lot of pain and with at least potentially it would move us down the road to a better outcome here. Yeah, a couple things. Uh, I think economists unintentionally did a disservice by putting so much weight on carbon pricing. Um, it's the Econ 101 answer, but it turns out that you know, a very large part of what we need to do is just stop burning coal. Uh, so it's not as if they, we need a whole lot of complicated incentives to induce people to move on many margins. We get a lot of it just on in, in a few places. Uh, technology, we've you know we've seen huge technological progress in renewables, and we can do a lot more of that. So uh, it is also true that R and D and pushing down the cost curve on alternative energy sources is a big deal. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I have uh, been. I mean, there were people who complained about these very you know, the Green New Deal, whatever. It, it's to some extent still in the eye of the beholder, but complaining that it's kind of, it sort of sounds like a Christmas tree, that you're taking a whole bunch of different things and, and selling them all as part of saving the planet. But I think that's a virtue, not a vice. I mean, if, if you can make it a Christmas tree where, yes, we're going to be generating jobs through government spending and we're going to be promoting all kinds of new industries and there's a lot of stuff for lots of people in there uh, and all of it in the name of and, in fact, helping to save the planet, that's fine. And I would say that there's a really strong case for not paying for it. It's uh, it, anything that involves investment. You know, when we have interest rates, you know, real interest rates, uh, inflation adjusted, are barely positive. We really don't have a, a fiscal constraint at this point if we, as long as we're doing investment spending. So, sure. I actually want to move to this because this seems to me to be really important. One thing about healthcare is that if you move all healthcare spending onto the federal budget, you're going to have to pay for most of it. Um, it's just too big. Uh, I don't, you know, I think that I, I've talked to the people who don't worry about paying for things and even they don't think you could do Medicare for all but not not spend the money on it. But Green New Deal, some of the other things people talk about, but let's stay there for a moment. And I'm talking here about the clean energy investment side of the Green New Deal, not the part of it that includes Medicare for All and a jobs guarantee and, and a bunch of other big social programs. I don't see that you need to pay for that. And if you don't need to pay for that, right, if you treat that the way they treated Medicare Part D, the Iraq War, $1.5 trillion, and in the future, potentially much more of the Trump tax cuts, the Bush tax cuts, right? Like these are things of comparable size um, in many cases. And so they didn't destroy the economy. I don't think it was a great use of resources or debt, but they didn't destroy the economy. And so if you could go in and do the Green New Deal and call it investment um, and not pay for it, that also makes it in some ways an easier lift than healthcare and allows you to deliver benefits and jobs and advances in a pretty different way. And if there's a problem in the debt market later, potentially you can deal with that later, which I think will be easier to deal with than a problem in the entire global planetary climate system later, which you have to deal with later. So I think not paying for the Green New Deal makes sense. Yeah, I've been proposing uh, a sort of a three-way division of progressive proposals. One is stuff that's investment. And a lot of the, you know, the Green New Deal stuff is investment. And on that stuff, don't worry about paying for it. Debt as an issue is just vastly overstated. And a lot of these things may well uh, repay themselves in large part. But in any case, it's just, it's just not something that given low interest rates, given a you know, private sector that seems to be uh, have lots of money all dressed up with nowhere to go, go ahead and just deficit finance it. Then there's a second range of stuff, which is things like pre universal pre-K, 
possibly some expansion in health benefits uh, short of, of a Medicare for all, which probably should be paid for, but they're fairly modest. So they could be paid for with fairly narrow gauge taxes, taxes on, on, uh, on the wealthy one way or another. And then there's the really big stuff like conversion to a, uh, a government provided healthcare system, uh, which is too big to, to, Deal with in those ways, and and which is one of the reasons it's such such a heavy lift. So um, one of the big discoveries I think we've made. I mean, we had this total debt obsession for a long period of time. Uh, it uh, there now that's where elites really you know got wound up and decided that debt was the greatest threat to the U.S. economy at a time when the financial markets were telling us, "Don't worry." Uh, that we've we have now, I think largely come around to the correct view, which is that debt is just not a serious problem for the United States currently. But what's interesting to me is that even on the left side of the Democratic Party, that really doesn't seem to be the view. Both Warren and Sanders operate very much in a pay-go world where they at least admit the concept that everything they're proposing needs to be fully paid for. And in Warren's case, she's released you know, complex plans of how to do that. You can argue whether or not they're realistic in their assumptions, but nevertheless, she's taken some real fire for for trying to pay for everything. Um, Nancy Pelosi has said she will reimpose PAYGO or will impose PAYGO on the House under a Democratic president, which she's imposed at, I believe, currently under a Republican president. I think there's been actually, oddly enough, a lot more movement on this question among progressive economists, not just somebody like you, but a Jason Furman, a Larry Summers. And there has even among the the left wing of the Democratic politicians. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure why, but it it is definitely the case that Nancy Pelosi and others, but certainly Nancy Pelosi is still very much in a kind of Clinton-esque, if you like, or a, a mode where things must be paid for. And, you know, it's not even it's not even the radical progressive economists. I mean, I, I wouldn't think that most people would consider Larry Summers a man of the left or Olivier Blanchard, the former chief economist of the IMF. And yet they are saying, hey, this this debt thing, you know, it's really way overrated in importance. And maybe, in fact, uh, a little bit more deficit spending might be a good thing, given the persistent weakness of, of private spending. So I don't know why that isn't making its way into Congress, uh, why it isn't making its way into uh, – that's right, even Elizabeth Warren's uh, campaign. So uh, maybe that's a place where – once once we've through the the nomination process and maybe uh, post election, uh, people like me can say, "Hey, you know, all of the serious, respectable economists think it's okay to run up the deficit a bit." J. W. Mason, who's an economist who works with the Roosevelt Institute, um, had an interesting piece, and I was talking about it recently for for an article I'm working on, where he just made the argument that. While it may be the case that there are conditions under which our debt is going to become a problem, that you'd want to deal with them a little bit more in real time, that the idea that you have to deal with everything as you do the legislation is wrong, that what you want to do is at some points just raise taxes because debt is getting out of hand or because interest rates are going up or because you have to slow the economy down in the more MMT framework. And on the one hand, I could see the argument that that is a problem because people aren't going to want to raise taxes when or cut spending when it comes to it. But on the other hand, it seems in practice we often actually do handle things that way. And so I'm curious what you think about that idea of severing what we choose to spend on and then how we manage the overall unified government finances from each other. Well, there are some political arguments for linkage. But no, I mean, that's basically right. Look, um, 
good part of, of my book, uh, I talk about what's now kind of ancient history, which is the Social Security debate. Uh, but there was all this pressure, and actually it continued on under uh, later on the debt debate, Simpson Bowles, where people are saying, well, you know, we projections show that entitlement spending will really rise way beyond revenue in 20, 30 years. And if that if that happens, we'll either have to raise taxes or cut benefits. Um, and so we need to move now. But then you ask, well, what is it you're proposing? And they're saying, well, we're proposing to gradually cut benefits, possibly raise taxes in order to avoid at some point in the future having to cut benefits and raise taxes. It, it didn't make any sense at all. The, since no one was actually proposing drastic benefit cuts now or sharp tax increases now, the whole notion that you needed to pass legislation now to lock in what was probably going to have to happen eventually anyway made no sense at all. One of the things that is striking about Social Security privatization is that it is one of the only big long-running political projects I can think of off the top of my head that has simply died. It's just gone. You don't hear Republicans talk about it really in any way anymore. Certainly Democrats didn't you know, didn't support it. But there were some Democrats in the 90s who at least were open to it. Bill Clinton was somewhat open to it. Other Democrats flirted with it. It is a very rare case of something that got so completely rejected when it was tried that it just seems gone from American politics. Yeah. So, I mean, the title of my you know, my book is Arguing with Zombies, and the point about zombies is it's extremely hard to kill them. But this one, we actually seem to have killed. I think it's it's probably because there there is an absence of success stories. When it was still a, a gleam in, in conservatives' eyes, I don't think they, they fully appreciated just how much the American people love Social Security as it is. And that they had a rude awakening there and, and are not prepared to bring this project back for a while anyway. This is one of the places where I wonder a bit about priorities because I could very much see a democratic administration where what they do as their first effort, and this would speak to your point about getting points on the board that people could feel, you could use the budget reconciliation process and you could expand Social Security benefits in a way that some of the candidates have already proposed and then you could also create something like a universal child allowance, which I think would be a very good idea. But one can think of that basically as Social Security for children um, or for the parents of children. And a lot of European countries have something like this, and it works very, very well. You could do all of that with 51 votes because it's straight moving spending up and down, and people would feel it very, very quickly. And you can imagine doing something like EITC expansion. I think Kamala Harris's LIFT Act is actually quite good on this. You could imagine a transfer program approach that you could do entirely through reconciliation. You could do it quite quickly and people would feel it quite quickly. And it may not be a crazy way to start administration and particularly not in an era when the gains of what economic growth we have had have been so unbelievably unfairly uh, distributed. Yeah, I think I've been trying to say that, that, that we want to do these things. And the revenue side, you know, well, we need some additional revenue sources, maybe, maybe... Not, but I think it's, it's less critical. And there's a lot of room to make a big difference in a lot of people's lives for not that much money. You know, elderly poverty, you know, we now realize it turns out the poverty measure was really flawed and, and measured correctly. Elderly poverty is still a big issue, and it's a lot of people, and they vote. Children, uh, doing things for children is really cheap, uh, and yet it's a, it's a huge thing that... Uh, 
tremendously you know, casts a shadow over people's lives. So if I were going to list some things that a, a democratic president should do that would show something positive, really win some support from people because uh, you know she or he is actually making my life or the lives of people I know better, those would be the areas. What do you think of the means testing versus universality debate that has begun to flare up in the Democratic primary? So we're talking, and last week or the week before, there's been a big fight about Pete Buttigieg attacking some of the free college for all plans as subsidizing millionaires going to college. And people say, well, Buttigieg, you're using Republican talking points. And on the other hand, it's just not the case that Democrats want to end all means testing everywhere. And so there seems to be a, a site universality versus means testing debate emerging, but I don't fully understand what it's actual, what actual divisions it's tracking. And I'm curious if, if you feel you do. Yeah, I think in some of this, uh, I think Ian Buttigieg is in fact using Republican talking points because this one, there, there's means testing that makes a difference, that actually makes a, a big difference to the ability to have an adequate program that's also affordable. And then there's means testing that doesn't. Means testing college tuition relief is just, there's just not that much money to be saved. It's like means testing Medicare, means testing, well, Social Security is already kind of implicitly uh, redistributionist anyway, but means testing Medicare. There's just, there are not enough people who don't need Medicare uh, that you save very much money by means testing it. So the, the universality is something you want to preserve because it makes the program simpler, it makes it uh, the, the base of support stronger. Uh, so leave that alone. Other things, universal basic income, it turns out that a, a UBI program that actually provides an adequate income uh, is extremely expensive. And so things like basic poverty aid should be means tested because we can't provide people with enough to live on unless we restrict who gets that money. And so the, it, it's not that means testing is always bad or means testing is always good. It all depends on the details, depends on the numbers. And it seems to me that a big part of that, if I'm understanding you correctly, and this has been my suspicion too, is really how much different players think they're operating in an environment of financial constraint, either because you can't raise taxes because people won't accept it or because you can't borrow because the markets can't handle it or the public won't accept borrowing. But universality in a lot of programs looks really good if you're not too worried about financial constraint. And means testing is a good way to bring program prices down if you're worried about how to fund them. But I often wonder how much universality versus means testing debate is actually just a like a second order debate of the of people's underlying assumptions about financing. I actually don't think I think I disagree with you there. When I look at the places where people take positions I disagree with on means testing, both pro and con, uh, it looks to me as if they haven't done the numbers. I don't think Buttigieg has actually thought through how much money would you save by trying to deny college tuition relief to millionaires. I don't think that Andrew Yang has done the arithmetic on what an adequate UBI program would cost, because if he did, he'd realize that to provide people with enough income to actually live on uh, would be a, an enormous program beyond the scale of anything that has any realistic chance of happening politically. Uh, so I, I don't actually think this is about differences in financing constraints. I think this is about politicians who are trying to score rhetorical points but haven't actually done the math. 
This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. There are a lot of policy debates that are about working out ideas or values that are deeper than policy. And one of the ones that really does seem to me to be up for grabs, at least on the left now, is what we loosely call neoliberal ideas. Um, and here I don't really mean the Hayek and Montpelier society, let's deregulate everything. I mean more this idea that the market is the appropriate way of weighing and thinking about public policy choices. And it seems to me there's a, there's a real move to say that has gone too far, that we wait too much by what the market thinks of it and we wait too little by just underlying values of justice or equity and that a lot of these fights are about just moving the way we think of policy more into that space, which universality uh, versus means testing is a, is a good example of. I'm curious what you think of that discourse, what you think of the fight around neoliberalism. I guess I – yeah, I, I agree with the premise, first of all, that there is such a thing as neoliberalism. It really was. I think about the 90s. I think about some of the things that I believed in the 90s that I don't believe anymore. There was excessive faith in the market as the arbiter of almost everything. Excessive belief that that um, let the market rip and it'll get most things right. It's not wrong to say that that did color policy. Uh, if we go back to Bill Clinton's administration, there was a lot of stuff that you would consider neoliberal in the way it approach stuff. And there was some of that even under Obama. Uh, so I think it is right to back off from that. Now, there's, as always, there, the problem is, is knowing where to stop. So I don't think that there's any realistic possibility that the U.S. political system is going to swing too far towards a command and control economy. Uh, but there is a real possibility that Democratic politicians could uh, be pushing for too much of that. But it clearly much more. I mean, the, the notion that that the market is is magical and gets everything right uh, has clearly went too far. And I think that to you, to layer this onto the means testing debate, one way of thinking about it that at least I find productive is that to say that we should means test college, say, is to say that it is to on some level buy into an argument that would have kept you from having truly public education or maybe kept you from having libraries that – it makes sense in a version of the world, if you're not just thinking about financing, it makes sense under values that are about efficiency, about – that just don't think too much about things that go beyond how the market would treat a good and just correcting market failures or helping those who don't have enough money to pay and that people want to have a swing back to a – an appreciation of public provision for values and for goods that go beyond efficiency, for just things that are not about what the market would do if you left it to its own devices and tried to tried to help out on the back end. And that that actually seems to me to be a big ideological shift we're living through and, and frankly, probably an overdue one. Yeah. And I'm not sure 
not entirely sure that this maps too well onto the means testing debate. And I'm not sure that it's actually about values versus efficiency either. There are a lot of things where public provision is just plain more efficient than private. Um, and so I, I, I actually tried at one point to kind of make up a list of, of things that we might think are better done by the public sector than the private sector uh, and ask how much of the economy it is without going too far. So I think we, we did learn from the history of the 20th century that you probably don't want the government running auto companies and steel mills. On the other hand, uh, publicly run utilities actually have a pretty good record. Uh, they are uh, places that actually still own their electric power company, did pretty well uh, in, in some of our various energy disruptions. Uh, basic education, definitely. There's really no uh, evidence at all that, that having widespread private provision of, of K through 12 um, is a good thing. And in fact, a lot of higher education has historically been done really well by state-run institutions. Uh, when I added up all of the things that where there's a pretty strong case that the public sector actually is better, it's 25% in the economy, maybe 30%. So fairly uh, straightforward economic logic actually says that a significantly mixed economy with a, with a pretty big public role makes a lot of sense. The notion that, that it should be market, uh, except under extreme circumstances, just doesn't hold up in the face of what we know. What were the guiding principles of how you decided if something was better done by the market or by the government? Uh, well, basically pulling it out of nowhere. Uh, but, no, <laughs> but no, things things where we know. Look, As we, so much macroeconomics is. <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't really macro. I mean, look, uh, uh, on healthcare, if you actually ask what system does seem to deliver the best results at low cost, it's genuine socialized medicine. The NHS uh, is actually a pretty good system and damn cheap. When it isn't being screwed up by the Mar-a-Lago gang, the Veterans Health Administration does a remarkably good job for very little money. Um, education, public education has always been the bedrock of our education system. And uh, the track record of private schools, for certainly a for-profit private schools, is actually horrifying. So you kind of look at the, at the history of each each piece of the economy. We have not had good experience anywhere with government-run manufacturing, though there might be a few exceptions even there, maybe generic drugs, let's say. Uh, but you know, I think it's it, it is really not a it's not a simple criterion. It's a let's look at this in detail. Let's look at the history. Let's look at what's actually involved in running it. How much do you see our politics now as the result or the aftermath of the financial crisis? I'd say remarkably little. When all is said and done, the, the shadow cast by the financial crisis on our political alignment is, I'd say, far less than it ought to be. We should have learned a lot from that, but I'm not clear that we did. I look at where today's Republican Party is, and it's very much a continuation of trends that were in place uh, before 2008, and the there doesn't seem to have been a whole lot of rethinking in in response to that. Have Republicans decided that financial deregulation is actually a bad thing and needs to be uh, reconsidered? I, I don't see that. Um, and the movement of Democrats towards a more progressive set of, of policy stuff doesn't seem to be much affected by the financial crisis either. So, no, I, I think in the politically, uh, 2008 is one of those turning points where things failed to turn. Uh, it it was, didn't, didn't play at all like the Great Depression in terms of its impact on our political landscape. 
In retrospect, how do you rate the Obama administration's response to the financial crisis? Oh, I would say uh, this is where I was really unhappy because I think that they could have done a much stronger stimulus. And they did, they really knew that they needed one, uh, but they were, were too timid. I think that they were too timid in confronting financial institutions. Uh, not that ex post, they didn't end up doing huge giveaways to the financial sector, but there was a lot of public money that was put at risk for very few strings attached. Uh, so I would have been happier if they had, you know, why, why couldn't they use reconciliation for the stimulus? I mean, I, I've still never understood why Republicans can pass a massive tax cut using reconciliation, but Obama felt he needed 60 senators to do a, uh, a response in the middle of, of the worst financial crisis since the 30s. I think that they should have tried to take one or two big financial institutions into temporary receivership, uh, if nothing else, to make a point to encourage the others. Uh, so I, I would have called for a much more aggressive initial response. And then after 2010, of course, they no longer had the ability to do anything much. So the window for a really effective, I mean, clearly it was way better than if there had been no response at all. If there had been no stimulus, if there had not been uh, the rescue of the auto industry, the U.S. economy would have done much worse. But I was really, I think there was, we paid a big price for the timidity of Obama and the people around him. You know, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the political constraints on stimulus. And I've heard their arguments about budget reconciliation and so on. And I think that given the way Congress was working then, it made some sense. I think they were more constrained by Congress than people often give credit for. But the place where I really am quite convinced and was at the time and wrote columns about this is, their response on housing always just seemed to me to be deeply, unacceptably timid. And they had a fair amount of control over TARP money, which they could have used more of that for housing. They were extremely stringent on the way they let people in or out of the HARP program and some of the other programs. It just, given how much money there was in them, they weren't well used and they weren't well used uh, in part because it was hard to use them. And they had arguments for this at the time. I, I actually remember being told that like I'd written some upset column about this and like there was a meeting in the White House. Could they do more more on housing? And they decided that no, they couldn't, that none of the other ideas like cram down and so on would, would make enough of a difference. Um, and they would all have these, these bad knock-on effects and credit markets and other things. But they seemed so terrified of, and maybe maybe correctly, right? I, I I can't say I truly know, but they were so terrified of credit markets reacting badly, of investors being scared out of places, that it really limited their movement. And particularly on housing, I just think that on a like on a basic fairness level, the fact that so much money got spent on the banks and so little directly on homeowners, even if they ended up believing that was the most efficient way to do this in some fundamental way, given what they could do, that the unfairness of it uh, has has lingered in a very toxic way in our politics. I'm not sure. I mean, I, um, it's certainly true that people in the Obama administration spent years constantly worried about a financial backlash that never came and trying to think it through shouldn't. There's no reason anyone should have expected it to come. So I had conversations with, with people there, and they were constantly inventing reasons why uh, uh, we're, we're sitting right, we're teetering right on the edge, and if we take a step wrong, then U.S. borrowing costs are going to soar. And that, that probably conditioned a bunch of stuff. Uh, I had the impression on housing, however, that they were politically terrified 
and maybe with some reason. I mean, people did a lot of uh, retconning the uh, Tea Party yep. uh, and make it as if it was about budget deficits or it was about the bank bailouts. But if you look, go back to the original rant, it was all about basically letting colored people get off the hook for the money they borrowed uh, for houses they couldn't afford. It turns out that housing relief uh, for, was a, a a flashpoint. It was something that that the right was using to to show that the you know, the Obama administration was giving away your hard earned dollars to people who didn't deserve them. That's a place where I think confrontation, though, might have made more sense. In general, I think a lot of the criticisms that have emerged on the left of the Obama administration are overstated and tend to underrate political constraints that another president could not have solved really any better. I mean, you can always imagine things being a bit better on the margin, but but not in a transform, transformationally different way. But I do think that there was a deep way in which the Obama administration's politics took right-wing critiques very seriously and thought very hard about how to answer them or calm them and worried very deeply about what would happen if they, if they slipped control. And the housing one, I think, is a great example of something where there really was energy in that. Everything you say about that is 100 percent correct. That Rick Santelli rant was about the HARP program. And on the other hand, I still think the long-term outcome would have been better if the Obama administration had been simultaneously more punitive on the banks and more um, lenient on homeowners and had just made that argument and fought for it and like gone out with a populist message on this and said that, you know, these homeowners are screwed by the banks um, and, you know, like just gone to gone to war on that one instead of, I think, being quite cowed by that one, worrying that, you know, they would lose the fight if they really had it. Well, yeah. I mean, it was this was to a large extent actually just Obama's personality. Uh, I mean, I was in meetings uh, with, you know, with various progressive leading economists uh, sitting with the president and some of the people around him. And it was clear that Obama's whole personal style uh, was one he and Tim Geithner were soulmates, right? And it, and uh, and he and Joe Stiglitz were not. And uh, so this was just not the the kind of thing that Obama was likely to do. And uh, and anyway, that's that may be the price that uh, it, it kind of probably wasn't an accident that our first black president was someone who shied away from confrontation in general. Uh, I don't think it did him much good. He managed to get demonized anyway, but that. That was a missed opportunity. I'm not sure how much difference it really would have made in the end, but it's it was certainly someplace where uh, too nice to the banks and too harsh on homeowners uh, was definitely a, a policy error. How big of a problem do you think right now monopoly and monopsony are in the American economy? It's really hard to measure those things. Uh, so that's a that's a typical economist comment, right? My academic side, um, but. Yeah, I look at the overall picture, which is that we have very high profits and very low business investment spending. And how do you reconcile that? How do we get a situation where borrowing is almost free, uh, profits are high, but businesses don't seem to have much incentive to invest? And that's, that's the signature. That's what you'd expect to see if monopoly power was the source of a lot of those profits. It's not the return on capital is actually quite low, but the return on having a dominant market position is really quite high. So it makes sense to think that monopoly power has become a big problem for the U.S. economy and uh, helps explain the the kind of bind we're in. Do you think it would be good for the economy if 
the Justice Department started going in and actually breaking up firms? Or do you think that that would create, I don't know, uncertainty or fear or some or just bad decision making that could be politicized by a future administration that, that would be worse than the problem it's trying to solve? I don't see any evidence that historically strong antitrust policy was a problem. I mean, we had strong antitrust policy for the generation after World War II, and it was also the best you know, 25, 30 years of, of economic performance we've ever had. And uh, the idea that, that firms are going to be not investing or something uh, because they're afraid that the Justice Department is going to go after their monopoly, monopoly practices, uh, you know, it could happen. Uh, you might find an example. But all of the experience suggests that 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 the actually the inhibiting effect of monopoly on investment you know why why add to your capacity when you can just raise prices instead uh, is probably a bigger deal than any negative spillover we might have from actually returning to old-fashioned uh, levels of antitrust enforcement I want to talk a bit about economic geography and the ways ours is tilting one of the really interesting themes in a bunch of your columns was that William Julius Wilson was right uh, that what looked like to a lot of people in politics um, as a cultural breakdown is often the downstream consequences of economic breakdown he was writing about inner city African American communities but you make the point that what happened to them in the 80s and 90s then happened to white communities um, in the aughts as jobs, moved into sort of urban centers, and you began to see those same cultural changes happen in the white communities. What Can, can you just talk a little bit about that debate? Because I think it's one that a lot of folks haven't don't track if they came of age in this political era, but it was huge when I was coming into politics. And I think that this finding is really, really important. Yeah. Um, I'm older than you are, obviously. And, and for most of my sentient adult life, uh, inner city Social problems were, you know, loomed very, very high on 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 people's mental picture of America, and there was kind of orthodoxy that the problem was that there, it was cultural, that there was some kind of breakdown in the African American family, and that's why things were so bad, and that's why crime was so high. Um, and along came Ju William Julius Wilson, sociologist, who said. Now, those things are consequences, not causes, that what actually happened was that economic changes, the uh, suburbanization of industry or the move of, of blue-collar jobs to lower-wage states uh, destroyed the employment opportunities for men in the inner city and that the social breakdown all followed from that. So the classic title was When Work Disappears. And if you wanted to do a controlled experiment or a semi-controlled experiment on that thesis, it would be, well, let's take a bunch of white people and take away the good jobs, destroy their employment opportunities and see what happens. And we ended up doing that in the kind of eastern heartland of the United States. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, social collapse. Uh, Takes slightly different forms, so it's but you know it's it's opioid epidemic and deaths of despair and uh, um, all of which I think uh, retroactively says that William Julius Wilson was probably right about what the sources of of our urban problems uh, of the past actually really were. But one implication of this, and I agree with it totally, is that the increasing economic concentration of industry, of wealth, of income, of dynamism, is a real social problem. Um, Hillary Clinton got in trouble after the election for saying that, 
you know, I won the parts of the country that were dynamic and moving forward. The parts of the country that I won accounted for, if I'm remembering the Brookings numbers right, I think it's 64%. 64% of the, of the economy voted for Hillary Clinton, yeah. So that's like a big, and that, uh, and if you go back to Gore, who also won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College, what he won was 54% of the economy. And if you go back further than that, it just, it wasn't as concentrated. So this implies to me that the concentration is both a very big economic and social problem, but also given that the way our political system works, it gives outsized power to the exact kinds of communities that are being denuded of jobs and made very angry correctly, um, that it's going to be very politically destabilizing too. And I don't see anybody who has a very good set of theories for economic geography. And I'm curious if you see it differently or even what such a what such an approach or agenda might look like. Oh, I put it a little differently. I think we have pretty good theories for economic geography. Uh, I would think that since I kind of invented them. But, uh, not not really, but you know, I this is this is one of my old academic. I, I'm sorry, fields. I meant policy agendas, uh, not like not like your your noble work. <laughs> right. Um, two things here. One is that the United States we don't have place-based policies. We don't have a, a, a system of policies designed to help lagging regions in principle. In practice, given the way that the U.S. fiscal union works, we actually provide massive aid to lagging regions. Federal taxes are strongly progressive. They're, they rise much more rapidly uh, than income at a regional level. Uh, federal programs are... they. There, we actually spend slightly less in high-income regions and more in, in low-income regions, uh, partly, I think, because of means-tested programs and a few other things. Uh, but as a share of income, federal benefits are much larger in poor states than they are uh, in rich states. So the result is that we actually provide huge de facto aid. If you, Kentucky appears to be at the top there. Kentucky receives de facto aid from the federal government that's about 20% of the state's GDP. You know, that's beyond the wildest dreams of European cohesion funds or anything like that. So we actually are providing huge aid, which is not stopping the economic divergence. It's sheltering. It's, it's cushioning the costs. You try to think about what West Virginia would look like without Medicare and Medicaid and, and Social Security and food stamps. Um, but it doesn't seem to attract industry to move back to these places. And if you look historically... Countries that have tried really, really hard to sustain lagging regions much more explicitly than, than we ever have in this country, uh, they have not succeeded. You know, Eastern Germany uh, is depressed after all of these years uh, and, uh, and it's voting for the, for the neo-Nazis. So it's hard to be optimistic here. I, I don't have any clever... I, clever ideas. I think the, the underlying economic forces that are leading to these regional uh, divergences are, are pretty strong and very hard to counteract. This has actually been a frustration of mine with the Pete Buttigieg campaign, which initially came out with a, at least a message that Buttigieg came from one of these Midwest communities that he cared a lot about revitalizing the industrial Midwest and other communities like it, and, and he would have some kind of approach to that. And, and in my view, he really hasn't. But something that is striking about it is that the particular community he comes out of, South Bend, Indiana, if you read his book or you just look at what its dynamics are, it's functionally a community kept aloft by Notre Dame. 
Like yeah. he has a very, very big university and he has, and I think this is to his credit as a mayor, been very clever about how he integrates the economy of, of South Bend with um, what Notre Dame is able to do, both in terms of what they're able to create given the expertise locked in there and also what they're able to, to attract given the economic advantages there. And there's a book by, uh, I think it's John Gruber and Simon Johnson, if I'm not misremembering this, called Jumpstart America, which makes the argument for doing much more in the way of placing research universities all across the country, trying to create hubs around um, basically knowledge centers, which in, in our economy tend to be universities. That always struck me as pretty clever and something you could imagine doing. The, you know, you could just have a lot more higher education and research funding. You could explicitly move it much more around the country and and, and put it in many more places. And, and maybe that would help in a lot of these communities. Well, yeah, uh, worth trying. I think I'm a cynic on this. I, there, there clearly are possibilities for a small city, maybe a, a small decayed former industrial city to reinvent itself as some kind of uh, new economy hub. And it, it, it often involves universities. It can involve other uh, particular events that, that give it uh, an advantage. I actually spent my early years in Utica, New York, uh, and occasionally I check, and Utica is doing a little bit better than the rest of upstate, um, partly because uh, Chobani Yogurt has its uh, headquarters and one of its plants near there. And you ask, well, what's that about? And it turns out to be a, one of these stories. Uh, the city, for some reason, got a bunch of Bosnian Muslim refugees in the 90s who were people who knew from yogurt. And um, so these things can can be done, but I wonder... I, my my sense is that there's actually kind of a limited number of slots for those kinds of small town success stories, and that one small town that manages to do that is basically taking the slot away from another small town that might be able to do that. That that the overall gravitational pull of the big, highly educated metropolitan areas uh, is not something that you can significantly offset by uh, having a a few more research universities in the heartland. Let me ask the opposite version of that question, which is, why are we seeing the increasing economic concentration? That's a favorite question of mine. Uh, hard to answer, but the most natural thing, and this is what a number of people have been saying, is that the knowledge economy uh, is a relatively recent creation. And we really see, I mean, the regions were converging Differences in income were diminishing up until around 1980, and then they start to widen out again, and educated people start clustering to places where there are already large numbers of highly educated people. Um, and it's the timing is roughly coincident with the IT revolution. So it's kind of suggesting that we're moving towards a different kind of economy, one in which a lot of enterprises want to be in the middle of places with a lot of college-educated people and a lot of amenities that serve college-educated people and so on. Um, so that's the kind of story that one tells. I think there are maybe other um, things as well. Uh, somewhat perversely, uh, it looks to me as if the internet has actually fostered concentration because it's made it possible to separate the low-value activities from the high-value activities uh, so that your back office operations can be someplace where land is cheap and wages are low, but you can keep your corporate headquarters and your uh, your high-level high technical staff in lower Manhattan. 
Um, so you don't have to pay the higher rents for everybody, but only for the for the good stuff. And so that may also have fostered concentration. It does look as if basically technology is what's driving this. And and you know, you were seeing the same thing happening all across the advanced world. The United States is not unique in this. Let me ask you something actually related to the internet question, which is you've been uh, criticizing Andrew Yang's more robot apocalypse theories recently. But to, to ask maybe the bigger question about that, I think it's intuitive to people that if we had more automation emerging, that that would be bad for the economy, it would be bad for jobs. And on the other hand, you talk to economists and they say a huge problem in the economy is that productivity growth has slowed down in recent decades, certainly compared to what it was in the post-World War II era. And so if we were actually seeing what the kind of dire robot people say we're seeing, which is a huge increase in how much work you can do with the same number of laborers, such that you need fewer people um, because you're automating so much of it, that would actually be good for the economy in different ways. Can, can you talk through that debate a bit? Is the problem that we have too many robots or the problem that we actually, in a more fundamental way, have too few? I mean, right now, the main point is we're just not seeing, I don't know if it's that we don't have enough robots, but we're just not seeing the economic payoff. I mean, we're in a period where we keep on hearing about how radical and impressive new technology is, but the bottom line is that output per worker hour is growing very slowly. So where, where, where's the payoff? I mean, I, how, how much of this is just that we're seeing conspicuous progress in some visible areas, but the, the basic way we live our lives, the basic way we do business isn't actually changing that much, uh, which, I, which is what I think is actually happening, that I think we're the kinds of technological change we're seeing now are are ones that are flashy uh, and very visible, and particularly visible to people like you and me. You know, people who who spend a lot of time communicating on the internet and and pushing information around, but actually don't change uh, the the broader structure of of work all that much. And in terms of of our robots or whatever, I mean. It, the, you know what is a robot? What we really mean is just any kind of of mechanization automation that allows you to do stuff with fewer workers. Um, is that good or bad for ordinary workers? And the answer is it depends. Historically, there have been periods when at least significant groups of workers have definitely been hurt by automation of some form. Uh, there have been other periods when the benefits have been very broadly shared. Uh, and this is this is an Ancient, ancient debate. I mean, they, uh, the British economist David Ricardo wrote about uh, added added a chapter to his Principles of Economics called "On Machinery," about how uh, industrialization could actually hurt workers. I think in 1821. So you know, we've been we've been back and forth across this terrain. I think the point right now is it it's it's kind of a a moot point because it's not really happening at all. The problems we're seeing are just don't seem to have very much to do with uh, the, I mean, I think the regional differences, there's a big technological component there, but the idea that robots are taking away the jobs of lots of American workers just doesn't seem to be true. Let me ask you something uh, about that, which is, I remember a great piece you wrote long ago about how you do your work. And one of the things you said in that was, I think the way you phrased it was listen to the Gentiles. This essay is great. It's in the new book. But you make the point that you want to listen to the experiences people are having outside of what the economics profession can see. And so what do you take from the from the fact that there it it feels so true to people that technology is reshaping the economy and that technology is hurting them? Right. That is there something there that possibly the economic data or, or the theories are simply missing? 
it could certainly be true. Now, the thing is, I am not hearing a lot of workers. Maybe I'm not talking to the right people. I'm, I, God knows I'm not out there visiting diners and, and, and having conversations, but I'm not hearing a lot of workers talking about how the robots are taking their jobs. Uh, that, that actually seems to be, to be more of an elite thing. Remember the skills gap about five years ago. If everybody important I do knew, remember the skills gap. Everybody knew that, we, that American workers just didn't have the skills to be employed in the modern economy, and then all of a sudden we have unemployment below 4%. Um, and so, and, and the, the skills gap stuff was not coming from workers saying, I don't, I don't have the skills to operate this stuff. It, it was coming from Jamie Dimon and people like that who, who were telling that story. I, I, my sense is that the robot apocalypse thing is not actually a, a grassroots perception. This is actually a, uh, a particular part of, of the elite's perception. And I, I guess they're Gentiles too from the point of view of economists, but, uh, but I, don't, uh, I don't think that this one is right. So that's an interesting sociological point. I mean, the skills gap argument, and you have a great piece on that and uh, around a Ben Bernanke speech in the book. The skills gap argument was playing a very particular political sociological role um, when it was made, which was to basically say that the problem here is on behalf of the workers, that they don't have the skills. Maybe it's a little bit policy because we should do education, but whatever it is, it is not the problem of rich people just siphoning off money from the economy. That if workers just like were better at being workers, they would be getting more of the money. And so like it was up to them to change it or up to policy to help them change it. It wasn't up to redistribution to simply change it through brute force. And is that sort of the same argument here that the robots are in certain ways an out for elites who want to suggest that simply what is happening to the economy and the pain in the economy, it's not really in any way their fault. It's just these impersonal forces that, you know, they've been able to navigate. And if, you know, workers want to figure it out, they have to they have to somehow navigate it, too, that it's somehow an excuse. Yeah, it's very much on the skills gap. I think it was also had, had to do with not being willing to accept that the problem was macroeconomic policies, that we weren't doing enough fiscal stimulus. But the uh, on the, the robot thing, I think it's very much. It, from where I sit, the problem of rising inequality in America is in very large part a problem of power. It's a problem of we crushed our labor movement. Uh, we have all this monopoly power on the part of firms. It's uh, that we set the rules of the game in a way that that have really disempowered and uh, removed the uh, possibility of good incomes for ordinary workers. Uh, that's not an appealing vision for a lot of people who are themselves successful. Uh, they like the story that it's it's about technology. That uh, um, that it's all about these these fancy new machines and and software and stuff like that. It's it's something that, among other things, is it's less confrontational. If you say this is this is all about power, uh, then people are going to be demanding action, and it it, it starts to get ugly. And uh, it poses as a I I have the policy answers, but it's also it's a form of fatalism that says, well, really, this is forces beyond our control that are doing it. Putting the policy agendas aside. In the 2020 primary, which candidate or candidates have impressed you most with their diagnosis of the underlying or overarching problem? Well, Elizabeth Warren's been really good on this. I mean, I, I, she really stepped in it on Medicare. Uh, but I think her sort of broad view that we're talking about a lot of unequal 
distribution of power, that we've been talking about a rigged system. That seems to me to be right. I guess Bernie Sanders, although I'm not sure I quite, I, I don't see the same level of clarity from him. Uh, certainly, uh, I think he's got uh, maybe too narrow a focus on what, what the forms of, of this uh, rigged system are. But in that general direction, beyond that, I mean, I, I have to say, I'm finding it hard to figure out what the vision uh, of the uh, the Democratic moderates is. I mean, I think they're, this is a collection of pretty smart, pretty good people, almost, you know, any one of whom would be uh, vastly better for American working families than current management. Uh, but I'm I'm not sure that they quite get it. And in particular, Joe Biden is, is still clearly the front runner. And uh, does he have any diagnosis at all of what went wrong? He seems to think it's just that we had one bad guy in the White House. It seems to me that if you abstract out what at least the Biden, Buttigieg, moderate wing has to say, that the, the distinction in the diagnosis of the problems, as I hear it, is Warren and Sanders in different ways are saying that the problem is economic power, with Warren having a more markets or rigged version of that and Sanders having a more capitalist or greedy and, and in, in many cases, evil version of that. And then that the basic argument made by Biden and Buttigieg is the problem is political division. And that Biden more explicitly, Buttigieg at times a little bit less explicitly, but makes the argument that they will begin to close some of the political divisions. And then in closing the political divisions, like they will be addressing the central problem of of, of the country right now. In some ways, it just seems to me to be a, a, a distinction in whether or not you understand the central problem as a sort of economic structure problem, or you understand it as like polarization and partisan fighting between the party's problem that's been exacerbated by people like Donald Trump. Yeah, and that's uh, it worries me because that's the idea that the political division is just somehow a something that just happened or something that's the result of a few people and can be, resol be resolved if if we all get nicer to each other. That strikes me as being fantasy land. Yeah, in in some ways, I wish the two sides could hear the other one. That I, I really wish the moderates had a stronger economic critique, and I really wish that the Warren Sanders world had a political institutions theory. That I'm worried that the like the moderates don't have um, an they don't have an overarching view of what's going on that I think is all that compelling. And I certainly and I would say this much more for Biden than than even Buttigieg, who I, I just think Biden's diagnosis right now is almost purely restoration. Um, but on the other hand, when I listen to Sanders or Warren, I really don't hear a theory of what you're going to do about, you know, you have all these big plans and then Mitch McConnell may well even be Senate majority leader. And what you're going to do about that is very, very, very unclear and seems to involve at least some amount of magical thinking. Yeah, well, I think the magical thinking is is more magical for Sanders than Warren, and Warren has talked at least about some things that she can do through executive action. But uh, part of the problem may be that there there is no uh, very good way to explain how we take on the political forces that have have led to this economic division. Uh, this uh, the moment you would have expected that to happen comes back to something we said earlier. I mean, in the aftermath of the of the Great Recession is when you might have thought that the possibilities for radical change uh, were really there, uh, but they were not taken advantage of, uh, or maybe maybe they just really weren't there. Maybe we actually coped with the crisis too well to uh, to allow for for something really dramatic. But um, 
how how you make it happen. The history of these things is that major change has happened only uh, in in periods of crisis, and uh, that bodes ill, I'm afraid, for sort of uh, all of our more optimistic hopes. I think that's probably a good depressing place to to, to come to a wrap here. So let me ask you the question. I'll see the podcast. When you're on the the last time I asked you for three books, um, and we talked about foundations by Asimov and some of your more classic recommendations. But let me ask you for a couple more economic or policy oriented books. What are some things you think beyond your 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 new book that people should read? Oh wow. Okay, I wasn't prepared for economics books. Uh, like I say, the modern economics mostly doesn't do books. <laughs> You know, we occasionally people do write books, but that's not how we uh, how the profession mostly communicates, and does tend to be short papers. Uh, but no, I mean, if, if I was, I was trying to think about you know, books that that have uh, influenced me over you know, for, over my life. Uh, I have no idea which ones I gave you last time, but uh, they are old. Uh, give, give, give me the list. Give me what you brought. Okay. So what I came in with was first uh, David Hume, An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, Book of Philosophy, Epistemology, um, which uh, I read in college and have read multiple times since, which is just about skepticism. How do we know what we know? And why you should always be asking yourself, how do I know this? In practice, it was it was an attack on religious dogma, but it's uh, it really applies to everything. And that 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 struck me like a thunderbolt when I was 18 and and still seems to make a huge difference to to me. In terms of uh, history, and there's an old book, William McNeil, Plagues and Peoples. And, you know, modern scholarship, I, I believe, has updated some of it, but it, it, it really, it's about a, a history of the world in terms of microbes. Uh, and what I took from that, aside from that being really interesting, is that the uh, the idea that What's really driving history is not necessarily what's making the headlines of the day, or not the. You you can hear all you like about about uh, great men and uh, and battles and and uh, political struggles, um, but these undercurrents, things like the spread of of a disease vector across the Eurasian continent, are going to uh, be powerfully conditioning the way that history plays out. And the last one I came up with was actually there are actually various versions of this, but the collected essays of George Orwell. Um, I've been hugely influenced by there. There uh, some of it, so it's really they are essays, but there's there's multiple um, essays in there. There's the famous Politics and the English Language, uh, which is uh, nobody should write for the public without reading that that essay and all the things that you should not do. Um, and other things too. There was there was an old essay in there called In Front of Your Nose about our inability to acknowledge facts that are clear and our inability to admit that we were wrong about anything. Uh, and uh, that has seemed increasingly relevant to me over the years. Paul Krugman, thank you very much. Thank you. That is the show. Uh, thank you to Paul for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. Um, again, if you want to check out the book tour, that's wirepolarized.com. If you've got AMA questions, that is Ezra Klein Show at vox.com. And the Ezra Klein Show, as always, is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot. 
because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.